we've always conceptualized mental illness as being something so, so scary. We don't talk about it, right? Um, we don't talk about mental illness. We don't talk about schizophrenia or depression or anxiety. Like we talk about things like cancer. People can talk about cancer like very, very comfortably, but this is just as much of a disease. And as always, whenever it comes up, I try to remind people of that. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. Welcome to part two of our exploration into psychosis. Today, I'm so excited that our guest is psychosis expert, Dr. Jessica Bernard of Texas A&M University. Dr. Bernard's research supports the theory that problems in a particular brain circuit contribute to the disorganized thinking seen in patients with schizophrenia. She's here to talk in detail about psychosis and to give us tips for people experiencing psychosis and their loved ones. Okay, let's get to the interview. The mental health download starts now. All right, so Dr. Bernard, my first question is, what made you want to study the brain and make this type of research a part of your career? Yeah, thanks, that's a great question. So. It's kind of a long winding road. Um, I started actually really fascinated by the brain and the body even as early as like high school. Um, I was thinking, oh, this is something kind of cool. Maybe I want to do this. And once I got to college was when I really sort of jumped into those more neuroscience, psychology based courses. And I started getting my feet wet a little bit and what that means and what that entails. And initially, so a lot of the work that I do has taken sort of a motor systems perspective. So how the body moves, how we control movement. Uh, And I had taken a class actually when I was studying abroad at the University College London with Patrick Haggard on entirely these types of things. Like how does our body move? How does our brain move our body? And some of this stems from the fact that I grew up with my grandfather He lived with us because he had Parkinson's disease. So I realized, hey, this is a thing I can study and look at and understand. And it sort of morphed from there. I did a PhD looking at more motor systems, the part of the brain called the cerebellum and how these things are different in aging. And then I went and did a postdoc looking at schizophrenia and schizophrenia risk really, people that are more likely to develop the disease. And a lot of what we were doing there, again, was focusing on motor systems. So how can we use the understanding we have about how our body moves to also maybe get insight into how this mental illness develops? Um, Well, the reason that we wanted to talk to you so much is that I actually have a friend whose father had schizophrenia, and sadly, he passed away. And we were talking about that, and she said, you know, when it comes to psychosis, people think that that's an illness when it's actually a symptom of mental illness, right? And there's just a lot of mystery around that word psychosis. There's a lot of fear Mm -hmm. around it too, right? So, you know, if you could just sort of give us an overview of what what the definition of psychosis would be to you. So when I think of it, I think of it as largely kind of a a break with reality in many ways. So an individual that's experiencing psychosis or psychotic, if you will, in the moment, they're not seeing and experiencing the world the same way you or I might, um, or an individual that is mentally healthy. And it is, it's a symptom, largely we can think of it as a symptom of the, the disease because the brain is processing things differently. Um, So it is this 
again, like I said, a dissociation from reality. It's seeing things that aren't really there, but it's because of what our brain is doing. It's doing things differently. So I work for Mental Health Association Oklahoma. We're a nonprofit or statewide. And one of our missions is to destigmatize mental illness. Mm -hmm. And so what have, you know, in, in dealing with schizophrenia, there is a just so much stigma. So, much. Um, so, you know, what are some of the things that when you're, you know, I don't know, at, at parties and things like that, that, you know, just talking about schizophrenia, what are some of those really hateful things that people may not even realize that they're doing that really bother you and that you see that that's stigmatizing? And then what, what do you do to kind of educate people to break down that stigma? A lot of it is just sort of, casual comments that we'll hear and admittedly I am guilty of this myself and I'm trying to be better about it after having worked in this field like little things even describing something as being totally psycho right that's the type of thing that adds to the stigma and using that term in just kind of casual conversation in almost a pejorative manner really adds to that and a lot of it has to do with the fact that people are afraid because they don't fully understand what's going on. And more broadly, we've always conceptualized mental illness as being something so, so scary. We don't talk about it, right? Um, we don't talk about mental illness. We don't talk about schizophrenia or depression or anxiety. Like we talk about things like cancer. People can talk about cancer like very, very comfortably, but this is just as much of a disease. And as always, whenever it comes up, I try to remind people of that, right? It's, it's an illness just as much as a stomach flu or cancer. Um, and that's all it is. It's the body acting differently. In this case, it's the brain. And yeah, it's a little scary if you don't understand at first, but also the reminder that, look, if someone is experiencing a psychotic episode, it's not purposeful. They are ill. And it's important to help them if possible, find treatment options, guide them to treatment as much as possible. But it's really those reminders that, yeah, this is this is a disease, it's an illness, it's part of the body, it's not purposeful, just like symptoms of cancer, for example. Let's talk about your actual research. Uh, so describe to us what the participants in your study, um, how are you monitoring what they were doing? What were you really hoping to learn? Yeah, so in this particular study, uh, really our goal uh, was trying to understand how this part of the brain, the cerebellum, it's kind of at the bottom and the back. It hangs out underneath the main part of the cortex. And our goal is to understand how this is processing information and learning new information. So back in the mid to late 1990s, um, a researcher by the name of Nancy Andreessen put forward this idea that she calls what is basically cognitive dysmetria. And all this really means is disorganized thought. The individuals with schizophrenia um, aren't thinking in a way that's necessarily organized. And it's been suggested that the cerebellum is important for that. So we had individuals come in and we wanted to see how they learned basically new rules. Um, so what they did, they went into an MRI scanner it's the exact same scanner you would go into if you were getting like a knee MRI, shoulder, hip. We just scanned the brain. Uh, we put a special helmet. We call it the Batman helmet because it kind of looks like a Batman mask um, over their head. And what we were asking them to do is learn the associations between 
different random arbitrary shapes. So one looked kind of like a crescent moon, one looked like a like comic splash. Um, I think there was a stop sign type shape in there, random shapes and different colors. And basically you learn that splash matches with green, the crescent moon matches with pink and so on and so forth. But you do this over trial and error. And this is a learning task that is known to engage the processes and the brain regions that are implicated in this idea of cognitive dysmetria. So we were looking in youth at what we'd call clinical high risk or ultra high risk um, for psychosis. Basically, this means they're at greater than average risk of developing the disease. Maybe they've shown some mild symptoms. Maybe they have a family member that has the disease. And we compare them with healthy controls. And basically, we're trying to understand how are their brains different? How are they active, acting differently during this learning process? And does this relate to disease symptoms? You had, what, about 20 individuals who were showing signs of psychosis. You also had about 20, another 20 who were just... Healthy controls, yeah. They were healthy controls, right. roughly age-matched. Um, we did this research. We actually collected all this data at the University of Colorado Boulder. So the controls are kind of other college students. We had some younger individuals, so late high school would get consent from their parents to be a part of this, yeah. So the the twenty people and they were what average age about twenty thereabouts yeah, about between nineteen and twenty yeah so those the twenty individuals showing signs of psychosis did you you know beyond them being a part of your of your research did you get a chance to actually hear their stories of what their lives were actually like and maybe it was there one person that you know all these years later that still stands out to you. So I personally didn't do a lot of the clinical interviewing because my background is in cognitive neuroscience. Um, however, there were a bunch of clinical psychology graduate students that did that, did that and we would certainly um, discuss their clinical status. So I had some idea, right, about these individuals and how they're doing. And I don't want to break confidentiality in sure. so much, but their stories in general have been very compelling. Um, and a lot of them came to the lab because they were looking for help. And that was part of the goal of the program, right? We want to bring in these at-risk individuals. And in addition to doing this research, can we get them the resources they need, be it setting them up with clinical referrals and so on and so forth, so they can get that care earlier and be tracked and monitored in case... Um, a percentage of them do and did eventually what we'd say they did what we call convert to psychosis. They had an episode of psychosis and eventually got that formal diagnosis. Uh, but they're, what I'll say is that their stories are often very compelling. Um, they broadly, these individuals have discussed how it is disconcerting. Many of these folks, I call them kids, um, and some of them really are. They're, they're teens, some of them are younger adults. They're having a hard time kind of interacting at school because of this. They don't really feel like it, but they also know something's kind of going on and it's hard being a teenager at baseline, right? <laughs> Never mind navigating, you know, later high school, going to college and dealing with the fact that, holy cow, something weird is going on and I don't quite understand what it is and don't know how to deal with it. Um, so that, that always really came through and was really striking. I recently read a book by Michael Pollan about how like drugs like LSD and things like this um, control the default mode network. 
And I'd never heard what it, I'd never heard that used. I've, I've worked in mental health for several years now, and it was fascinating to understand that that existed, and then to hear how many of my super genius fellow co-workers who are social workers who have been in the mental health field for decades had never heard of the default mode network. And actually, when I was doing research on your research, uh, you mentioned the default mode network. So I would love for you to explain what that is and how important that is and the role it plays in psychosis. Yeah. So the default mode network um, is hugely important is one of the first things to say. So basically, first of all, is this idea, what is this network? Um, and this was originally discovered and found by a researcher called Mark Reichel um, at WashU in St. Louis. And it's this idea, basically, when anybody is doing that sort of kind of mind wandering idea and not thinking about anything in particular, there are these key hub areas of the brain that are working together. So an area called the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingulate, the precuneus, doesn't really matter what they're called, um, but these core regions are basically oscillating together. You can think of the signals that we look at, they're kind of like a sine wave going up and down, not quite perfect in that way, but they all follow the same pattern. And the other key thing to think about is we have to shut that network off when we want to start doing things. So if it's like, yeah, you're, you know, your mind wandering and you remember, huh, hmm, time to go to the grocery store. Let me think of like, what are those five things I need to pick up at the store in order to get dinner going or whatever. That's when we tell our default mode network to shut up um, and kind of go away. You get what we call task-based or task-positive networks online. And in mental illness, and actually in a lot of diseases, and not just schizophrenia, we see difficulty with the default mode network. Individuals have a really hard time shutting that down and getting those networks for task function on board. So having this healthy, basically healthy default mode function, but also interactions between the default mode network and these more task-based networks and regions are really important. And we see this in schizophrenia, for sure. Um, and some of that came through in this study, we'll see areas of the brain that are active coming through in at-risk individuals that we wouldn't expect to see because they're these more default mode regions. And it's suggesting they're not able to get out of that sort of internal thought processing state, essentially. Uh, but we all have it, um, and it's just how well we're able to say, hey, go away, shut up, default mode network, basically. And reading Michael Pollan's book and then just my, in my own personal journey, meditation has played a big, like some of the research is showing that meditation can really do that <laughs> shutting up of your oh, yeah. default ne mode network. Mm -hmm. have, have you have you looked into meditation and, and, and its effects on brains? So I more honestly only in my like casual general interest because um, it's fascinating. There's amazing work. I, uh, it was Richard Davidson, Dr. Davidson at Wisconsin had Madison has worked with Tibetan monks. He has worked with the Dalai Lama and individuals over in Tibet to look at these individuals that essentially meditate almost professionally in a way and finds alterations in these networks. And I just think it's so fascinating. Um, but honestly, my knowledge is more from my own general interest, right? Like what is the potential health benefit for me of taking 15 minutes to try to meditate? Because it really does 
seem to have an impact on the brain and on our function. We always talk about, or often we'll hear people talk about like, oh, meditation, does it really do anything? Well, it seems like yes, it actually really does. Um, and it's really good for you to take that time to meditate and works on that default network. This level of research, your level of research, is opening doors that have never been open before. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, you know, where are you know, as we step through those doors right now, where where's that leading us? What are what are you hoping for the future of of mental health treatment yeah. because of research like yours? My hope really is that with the type of research I do and I've done, that we get a better understanding of one, the underlying factors that relate to mental illness. We talked about this a lot um, within the lab and we bring this up, the idea of, so to get like a cancer diagnosis or a flu diagnosis, we have assays for that, right? You can go to the doctor, they'll take your blood. Or if they suspect cancer, they'll take a biopsy and they know how to look at those cells under a microscope. We're not there when it comes to mental illness yet. We have to look at the symptoms um, and basically match those up with the DSM after doing a clinical interview, but there's no way at this point to say, hey, let's either maybe take a brain image, let's look at your brain, how it's acting, to say, yes, this individual definitely has schizophrenia or depression and so on and so forth. And my hope is twofold, that this type of work will, one, help us find a way to better diagnose individuals, maybe more easily. Sometimes individuals are very ill and undergoing a full clinical interview is really, really difficult um, to get good information, but it's just really taxing and stressful for the patient because uh, they're not well. So this might be an option there, but also earlier diagnosis and earlier intervention, right? Can we start Part of the importance of looking at these clinical high-risk groups or can we figure out what might be the factors that differentiate those in this clinical high-risk category that develop the disease from those that don't and remain generally pretty healthy. And if we do that, it means earlier intervention in terms of maybe pharmacological, maybe with meds, maybe with therapy, uh, but also maybe family support and intervention, right? Often we're talking about young teens. So how can we get their families on board to help and provide a more supportive environment that is really important for mental health? Um, so from that early intervention perspective as well, I think it's, I think that's the next place to go. And it would be the most ideal if we can know early on with a pretty good level of confidence, who's more likely to develop an illness, we can start treating them. And I think that has huge benefits long-term. If you can manage an illness early, outcomes are gonna be likely to be much better in the long run. So one of the sad state of affairs with mental health treatment in mm -hmm. America, and especially here in Oklahoma, we have a high rate of serious mental illness mm -hmm. and a low rate of funding. Where yep. <laughs> it's, it's just not been a priority, which mm -hmm. has led to, you know, where Oklahoma is, um, we're number one in incarcerating women. We're number two right now mm -hmm. in incarcerating men. We all of these horrible health outcomes yeah. uh, because of this. So I'm, I'm curious, what, were, what do you think some of those solutions are? Uh, so a lot of it is getting, at least from what I've seen here in this part of Texas, and I think this is fair to kind of generalize broadly around the country, access to practitioners and treatment is 
so, so challenging. Um, getting individuals to healthcare providers that are available because in many places, there are far more people that need mental health care than there are providers that are able to help them out. Um, so getting treatment, and some of this in many cases has to come through additional training. I know here in parts of Texas and Colorado, they're doing a lot of rural health initiatives because of how the population is centered. Um, here in Texas, we have the Texas Triangle where there's just millions of people, and then it becomes very rural and you don't have all this immediate access to hospitals and healthcare. Colorado is similar with that front range mountain area. Most of the state lives between Colorado Springs up through Denver and Fort Collins, but then there's these large rural populations that don't have access. Um, so that to me has always been hugely frustrating. Can we get healthcare providers to the people that need them? Um, as you already mentioned, funding is also a huge part of this, right? Um, at the state level, at the federal level, in order to get the care to the people that need it, get the research there, get the information out, to the practitioners and to communities. And the other thing that we, we sort of touched on a little bit already has to do with mental health stigma. Um, I think having more public health focused initiatives on mental health care would be huge. Um, I know in the UK, actually, um, there's been a lot more of this, actually, thanks in part to the royal family. Um, I know. been super open. It's, they've been wonderful. It's amazing. <laughs> they have this Heads Together campaign where all these young royals are coming out and talking about it. They've talked about dealing with their own anxiety and mental health issues. I believe um, Catherine has talked about postpartum mental health and that has been wonderful. It's great. And being very open about it, having that sort of, I mean, we don't have a royal family, but that sort of analog in terms of openness about mental health, people talking about it um, and getting that out on a broader level, I think would also be huge. Now, caveat here, of course, that requires funding and so on and so forth. So it's sort of this like catch 22 and vicious circle, but I think those are kind of the key areas, getting practitioners to the people that need them, getting more funding for all of this and getting mental health outreach, public health outreach that's focused on mental health and healthcare in that regard are key. Yeah. And, you know, not relying on our incarceration system to yes. be a mental health, <laughs> mental yeah. health, you know, in Oklahoma, the, our incarceration system is our de facto mental health institution. I, I think that's a, in the case in a lot of places I've heard, and I don't have the actual stats on this. I've heard similar things though about parts of Texas as well. Um, the majority of the mental health care is in the incarceration system. I actually know our training clinic here on campus, they're amazing and do wonderful things. And in part, there are students that go and work with the jail here and provide mental health care to the incarcerated population, which is awesome. Um, but it's also, that shouldn't be the first place where these individuals are getting that care, right? I know. Yeah. Um, our big motto is treatment, not punishment. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know a gentleman. Um, he lives within our. Uh, we have housing for people mm -hmm. who have been, uh, who have mental illness, who have experienced homelessness, and who have been incarcerated. And his name's Billy. And mm -hmm. Billy told me that he got his diagnosis of schizophrenia while he was incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, it was horrible being behind bars, but that was such a blessing to finally have clarity of, sure. oh. 
I have a serious mental illness and Mm -hmm. this is why I've been having these symptoms and finally getting on medications that are effective. You know, a lot of the time people think that, um, especially with schizophrenia, that there's no real hope that when you have a a diagnosis of schizophrenia or serious mental illness, your life will always be defined by that. But the fact is treatment is available and it's effective. So what are some of the the treatments that you have learned about over the years that have been most effective with people with schizophrenia? Um, So the first line of treatment really has largely been antipsychotic medication. Um, And we know those do really well, particularly for those hallucinations and delusions, those symptoms of psychosis. And oftentimes that is the big thing that people are worried about getting under control. It makes you feel the most dissociated from yourself, literally, in many ways. So antipsychotic treatment is critical, um, or not critical, but very important and is often, I think, the first line of treatment for individuals with schizophrenia. The one hard part about treatment um, is that there are also what we call these negative symptoms that come with the disease. The positive symptoms are the hallucinations and delusions. The negative symptoms are similar to those of depression. Um, But unlike major depressive disorder, where you might feel really, really down for a while, but then kind of come back up to normal, they're kind of consistently down and low. So this feeling of apathy, withdrawing from friends, those can be harder to treat because the antipsychotic medications don't touch those. Um, so there are a variety of ways those can be dealt with. Sometimes um, psychotherapy is an option there, um, but there's also been, I've heard about great work doing sort of like job skills training, which is really important, especially as you know, homelessness and schizophrenia often go hand in hand, and it can be very difficult for an individual that's actively experiencing psychotic symptoms to hold down a job just because of their illness. Um, but having job skills training to kind of go along with the pharmacological treatment can be really, really helpful, and it can help patients basically find their footing again, right? Um, get into a routine finding a job, et cetera, that gives them back that kind of everyday living, that return to a state of normalcy, feeling like themselves, and so on and so forth. Um, And the other big thing is having social support, having a support network there, be it in terms of family member, friend, a partner. And again, that can be hard as we've touched on already some of the stigma that comes with schizophrenia, we've you know, the notion of homelessness being particularly common among individuals with schizophrenia, they don't always have that, but if possible, either finding it or if they're able to rely on family members, friends, et cetera, that can be huge in helping as well. You've given some wonderful tips for individuals who have psychosis. Um, one of the things that people forget is they have friends and loved ones yes. and coworkers. And so, um, you know, what advice would you give to their loved ones to under, to understand what this person is going through? What, you know, what tips would you give them? Uh, so the first, honestly, a little bit is take care of yourself too, right? It's so, it's hard to find out anyone has any sort of intense mental diagnosis and a diagnosis of schizophrenia is a big diagnosis. It's life-changing just as much as a cancer diagnosis could be life-changing, right? Um, So taking care of themselves, but also remembering 
and really trying to internalize the fact that, yeah, this is a disease. It's a disease that just is seated in the mind and remembering that, yes, with treatment, the individual can get better and in many cases do fairly well, quite well for in, in some instances. There are some great examples we could talk about, um, but it can be treated and as best as possible being there to support that person with the disease is really important. And obviously it can be really, really hard, especially when they're trying to get that medication under control and are maybe still experiencing some of these psychosis symptoms, but really remembering the symptoms are not the person, right? It's just a side effect of being ill, just like a fever that might come with strep throat. Once you get that treated, once you get kind of get that under control, that symptom will hopefully with good treatment subside and go away. So as much as you know, take care of yourself, try to be there for the person and remember they're not their disease. That loved one is in there and it's just sort of a matter of being there for them, helping as much as possible to get those symptoms under control. Um, just a few more questions yeah. for you. Just this is so fascinating. No, it's fun. Uh, it's fun. Um, you know, media plays a big role in uh, how people perceive psychosis. What are what are some of those things that you look to, and they give you hope that you know we that we can you know have a positive perspective on psychosis in the media? Mm-hmm. So some of this actually, um, there's a really wonderful TED talk that I actually use in my intro to psych class when we talk about mental illness and schizophrenia by Ellen Sachs. I'm not sure if you've come across her. So Ellen Sachs, I believe that's actually Dr. Ellen Sachs, is the, I want to say the dean of the School of Law at the University of Southern California, in addition to having, I want to say, a doctorate in psychology. But she also has schizophrenia. Um, she went to, I believe, Oxford and Yale. Um, so highly educated, amazingly smart individual who has schizophrenia. And her TED talk is based on her experiences with the disease, what it's like to have a psychotic episode, what that feels like, what that looked like. She's had kept journals and diaries about this, um, but also what she does now and she is hugely successful um right i mean she's a law school dean or something to that effect it's amazing for anyone and then you add into the fact that oh she's done this overcoming a major mental illness um and she also has a book called the center cannot hold that details her experiences and whatnot and the ted talk kind of follows along with that and that's one of my favorites um you can see this woman who is just a force to be reckoned with in her own right. And then you start hearing about her experience with mental illness and the fact that, yeah, she's still her doing amazing things. And you really see the humanity in it, I guess. Um, for I, I don't know how to describe it particularly well, but you it puts a face to it. And it's a really great reminder that, yeah, you can have a mental illness, but still be hugely successful and live your life and overcome that. Yeah. That's a beautiful, beautiful message that we just need to get out to more people. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are you working on now or what will you be working on going forward or what do you want to be working on? 
So at this point, I'm actually doing a lot of work related to aging. Um, it's another area I look at, and I think it's quite interesting because there's been some work showing parallels between the brain systems that are impacted in Alzheimer's disease and those that are impacted in schizophrenia. Actually, if we go back to the really, really old Kraepelin, he called schizophrenia dementia precox, basically early dementia. Um, so I've shifted a bit towards aging, but I still do a lot of collaboration um, with Dr. Vijay Mittal at Northwestern University. And working with him, um, we're looking at using some brain stimulation techniques actually over the cerebellum in individuals with psychosis to basically see, can this actually improve some of the cognitive behaviors to some of these sort of memory type tasks, these thought processes that show deficits with the disease. Um, so basically we, they come in, they undergo non-invasive, it's totally reversible, but it's stimulation. Doesn't, it kind of tickles actually. Um, I have a stimulator up in my lab here that we use. It feels like a little itchy, tickly, tingling sensation. And we're looking to see if that can actually help improve some of these cognitive behaviors and cognitive symptoms. And the idea, now this is just the very first step of many, many, many additional steps, but theoretically, if this type of thing works, it's actually something that could be a potential treatment or a treatment adjunct in the future, obviously after extensive additional research, but it's another way we might be able to help out individuals with the disease um, because these stimulators, it's called transcranial direct current stimulation. And it's essentially kind of looks like a small battery pack um, and you can attach it to the head. It's quite easy with instructions. Individuals could effectively do it at home under supervision from a caregiver or a care provider. Uh, I would not recommend anyone do this at home on their own, let me be clear. Um, but in the future, right, that would be the idea. You could, you know, get one of these, like a prescription kind of thing, or your um, psychiatrist or whoever you're going to for your care who would give you all the protocols. You can program the machines to only work for X number of minutes at X level of stimulation at X time of day. And it may be an additional option like i said a long way down the road this is kind of a first step in that direction wow that's very exciting yeah. very exciting that's that's all i have thank you okay. so much for being with us today yeah thank you so much for having me this was really wonderful okay thanks again to dr jessica bernard for being with us today and if you haven't already be sure to download part one of our psychosis series today all right as a reminder that we can all make a difference in destigmatizing mental illness I'll leave you with these words, go do good things.